Mr. Chairman and delegates to the United Nations Conference on International Organization. Oh, what a great day this can be in history. Greetings, this is Dan Becker, and you are listening to the third and final episode of our podcast series called Act of Creation, based on the book of the same name written by our guest, Stephen Schlesinger. Today's episode completes the three-part series in a somewhat unique way. It consists of a series of small episodes, starting with the completion of our main discussion, the unanimous signing of the UN Charter on June 26, 1945, but then continuing on story by story up to the present day. The episode is called The UN Charter, A Question of Faith, with the subtitle being The Substance of Things Hoped For, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. A quote of St. Paul's in my own favorite way to capture the spirit of the UN. The main motivating principle of this episode is to see how our newborn, the UN Charter, has fared in its 78 or so years out in the real world. There's a lot of information packed into these 40 minutes, so please get your ears ready. You'll hear the voices of Eleanor Roosevelt, Kofi Annan, several snippets of Harry Truman's fantastic speech from the Charter signing, and much more. There are three main themes running through these stories. One is about enforcement, one is about humanitarianism, the other is about the under-discussed relationship and responsibility between the United Nations and its 193 member states. We hope you've both enjoyed and have learned something from our series. Thanks in advance for your kind attention to this and hopefully the other two episodes of Act of Creation. Greetings. This is Dan Becker, and I'm here with Stephen Schlesinger to talk about the ending of his book, Act of Creation, uh, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Um, We left you last episode, episode two, right before the charter was signed, the night before, and we told you we would get you over the finish line today, the third and last episode. Today we'll be in two parts. First, we'll we'll finish the the trip, and then we'll get into the much more... uh, thorny and difficult discussion of talking about how the promises, the ideals of the United Nations have fared in the 78 years or so since it was founded. Um, Stephen is here uh, once again, and uh, greeting Stephen, it's my, my great pleasure to have our final session together today. How are you doing? Good. I'm very glad to have this chance to wind this up. I think we've had an extraordinary conversation. We ended last episode, um, if you remember, it, it the evening before June 26th, which was when the charter was signed at the uh, Veterans War Memorial Building in San Francisco. So the next day is the day we celebrate Charter Day. And um, did Truman come to San Francisco for this occasion? He did not, he did not come for the opening of the conference. Uh, well, Truman, Truman uh, at the opening of the conference, he gave a radio address. He was doing that from Washington, D.C., but he felt very strongly about the United Nations. He records very proudly in his own memoir that he instructed the meeting to go forward and the U.S. was fully committed despite the loss of Roosevelt. So at the end of the conference, he flew to San Francisco and on the day of June 26, when the signing was to happen, thousands turned out. It was too great a claim that he arrived. President Truman leaves for a brief tour through San Francisco. His is the first visit to San Francisco by a chief executive in seven years. Half a million citizens turn out to hail the presidential motorcade. 
and this was a signal achievement by the U.S. government. This is the first time the U.S. had joined an international organization in its entire history. Yeah, um, I had always known that, that Truman did make uh, the signing, but I did not realize that it was such a big deal. That there was a parade through all of San Francisco, and that it, it did get so much uh, attention. Um, I even had his schedule here. He arrived at 1 p.m. In, in San Francisco, and that was covered. Parade at 2 p.m. through San Francisco. 2.45 was when the, the signing of the charter was supposed to start. As Mr. Truman arrives, 63 days of concerted international effort are climaxed by the signing of the United Nations Charter. First to sign is China, the first nation that suffered Axis aggression. Dr. Wellington Koo signs with a traditional Chinese brush. The delegation of the Soviet Union, Ambassador Andrei Gromyko signs for Russia. 38 of 50 nations to sign is the United States of America. Secretary of State Statinius. Um, after the, the charter was signed is when Truman gave a quite excellent speech uh, to close. And uh, I love this, this speech because it's filled with, uh, you know, uh, use it or lose it, <laughs> essentially, um, that, that, that spirit. You have created a great instrument for peace and security and human progress in the world. The world must now use it. If we fail to use it, we shall betray all those who have died in order that we might meet here in freedom and safety to create it. If we seek to use it selfishly for the advantage of any one nation or any small group of nations, we shall be equally guilty of that betrayal. Once that was all signed and done, after two months or so of, of hard negotiation, uh, you might think we could stop the story right there and, and pop the champagne, but not really. Uh, the, the charter had to go through another process. Stephen, can you explain that? Yeah, the, the charter would not go into effect until every nation, every member state that had come to San Francisco had taken the charter back to their own legislature or Congress or uh, parliament for ratification. And that, of course, was going to take, you know, a considerable amount of time. And uh, but once a majority of states had signed on to the charter, uh, it came into effect. As we move into uh, uh, talking about how the UN has fared, I, I always like to, when I discuss how things are right now, go back and look at the ideals. But with with armed with all of those ideals, I wanted to just give you the the, the floor for a little bit. Uh, uh, it may be a brief overview before I ask a bunch of uh, about separate issues, but I'd love for you just to speak for well, a few I, minutes. Well, I would say that the, the most essential point about the United Nations is it has not been a third world war since its establishment back in 1945. And, and we should all be relieved by that because we know a third world war would be involved nuclear weapons. But I think otherwise the UN has had pluses and minuses. Uh, uh, you know, on the say, let's say on the issue of human rights. But remember, when the UN was set up, human rights was not a condition of entry for any country. What was the condition of entry was simply to be in the UN, so that whether you were a dictatorship or a democracy, so that every country would be therefore 
participating in all the security aspects of the UN. So the UN, in that sense, is, a, is arranged in such a way that it has to bring a, a consensus uh, between the five nations that were picked in 1945 as the most powerful uh, states on, on the globe, France, Great Britain, United States, China, and, and the Soviet Union, in order to come to any resolution that the UN can enforce. It means that in any case, the UN is successful when it can get that consensus. It did, in, for example, when the UN sent in troops in 1950 prevent the North Koreans from overtaking over, uh, the South Koreans when they invaded. Uh, and the UN set in its, uh, its, its own forces backed by the countries of the, of, of the organization to stop that invasion successfully. Um, and there have been occasions where the UN has played a strategic role, for example, in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, when uh, the, the real threat of an atomic um, confrontation was thwarted between the Soviet Union and the United States, um, Yuthan was able to be the arbiter between the two nations. Hutant met separately with both Russian and United States representatives to iron out some preliminary details before his conferences with Castro. On the other hand, we all know the, the failures of the UN. Uh, the fact that uh, Syria today is in the throes of uh, a uh, years-long conflict, Yemen. Again, you need a consensus within the Security Council and among the five key veto nations in order to get that consensus. And this means that you have a, a continuing yin and yang between the weakness of the UN when it, that you can't get the consensus and the strength of the organization when you can. Now, the, the issue with humanitarian aid is that people s seem to think it's separate from the actual military missions that the UN undertakes or peacekeeping. To me, it's all part of the same ball of wax, so to speak, because the way the UN was developed in 1945 was that the, the feeling was that behind every war is not just uh, military action, but it's economic problems. Experience has shown how deeply the seeds of war are planted by economic rivalry and by social injustice. The Charter recognizes this fact, for it has provided for economic and social cooperation as well. It has provided for this cooperation as a part of the very heart of the entire compact. So in that sense, the UN is bifurcated it, it's in such a way as to prevent the outbreak of conflict. And that really is what the UN is trying to succeed in, in, in its most important goals. There's one issue I'd like to bring up, which kind of leads us to part of the conversation, which is about how did the promises and the ideals of the UN, how have they fared in the 78 years or so since it was signed? So now I feel armed with the Charter, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and then a little bit with the speech uh, Truman gave at the um, at the Charter signing, which, which I think is a really good speech. We always knew when we created 
started this uh, podcast series that episode three would be sort of a winding up of the conference, and then we would take a take a look at uh, how things have fared for 78 years. And and uh, for our audience, they should know that the first two episodes were recorded in September of 2022, um, but today's episode is being recorded on uh, December 15th, 2023, and it's. Uh, uh, just five days after the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights being adopted. Um, and we're also about a month and a half or so into the um, uh, war in Gaza. As a way to move to, to that conversation, I wanted to just ask a little bit about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, it didn't happen before the charter was signed, but could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yes, I think there was a feeling uh, among the delegates at the UN that, uh, that in 1945 that not enough had been talked about human rights. And so there was a, a kind of urgent feeling that there should be an additional meeting held which would emphasize the UN's focus on this very important part of uh, its goal. Uh, and it's had an incredible impact on the world in the sense that Every country, every dissenter, every individual who feels battered by the vagaries of their own government can appeal to that universal declaration. And um, I think that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's imprint on that document in 1948 was indelible in a way that uh, gives, I think, a feeling that this is one of the most important documents to really ever come out of the United Nations. We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. But on the other hand, like everything that happens in the UN, there's a strength to it and a weakness to it. Now, the strength of the Universal Declaration is the fact that it puts into the public uh, venue the notion that human rights is an indelible part of being a human being in, in this globe. The problem is that it's very difficult to follow up with enforcement. That's always been the problem with the UN. It can talk about the most idealistic things that we all believe in, but unless you have enforcement behind it, it doesn't necessarily live up to what we all wish it would live up to. And that has been the signal problem with the UN for the last 78 years. But since you bring that up, um, let's move to the present for a minute and, and talk about uh, the Secretary General invoking Article 99 to bring the Security Council together to talk about uh, um, suggesting, convincing, talking, encouraging to create a, a humanitarian ceasefire in, in Gaza. Could you just mention a little about uh, Article 99 and then something about that? Yeah, Article 99, which has basically rarely been used by any Secretary General, allows the Secretary General to bring to the attention of the Security Council what he or she may consider a absolute critical issue facing the world. I wrote to the Security Council invoking Article 99 because we are at a breaking point. There is a high risk of the total collapse of the humanitarian support system in Gaza, which would have devastating consequences. 
we anticipate that it would result in a complete breakdown of public order and increased pressure for mass displacement into Egypt. I fear the consequences could be devastating for the security of the entire region. And uh, in a sense, force the Council to address that issue. Um, the strength of that is that the, it does give the power to the Secretary General to create a public attention among all 193 uh, countries in the UN. And, and the fact that it's been rarely used means that when a Secretary General does use it, um, means that it will get extra attention in the media, among the, the delegates, uh, and in, in the councils of the warring parties, that this has got to be addressed one way or the other. The weakness of, of, of that Article 99 is that there's no enforcement behind it. And uh, yes, the Secretary General certainly can play an uh, influential role in, in um, amplifying the need to do something about this problem. But without any enforcement behind it, um, it also can look like a weakness on the part of the Secretary General. And in fact, Guterres having done this action a couple weeks ago, there's been very little uh, response in the, in the way that he wanted. I mean, there is, of course, continuing criticism of both Israel and the United States for not pre pressing for a, a ceasefire. And uh, this is becoming an acute problem for both those countries. And in that sense, what Guterres did is simply added to the drama of, of the, the, you know, world opinion feeling you've got to stop what you're doing and, you know, make possible a ceasefire. On the other hand, if the United States and Israel are just going to, you know, say we're not going to do anything about it, we're going to do what we want, there's not much the UN can do. So it didn't happen. And uh, uh, was there ever any thought that, that invoking Article 99, having Guterres creating all this tension um, and creating this moment, that it was our hope that it would force the United States to like at least abstain, or do we just know right away that it was never going to happen? No, I think I mean I think Guterres, you know, in his defense, thought it would have an impact on the U.S. because the U.S. is frankly the only country that can put any pressure on the Netanyahu government in Israel to uh, you know pare back its aggression in, in, in Gaza. Um, and I think the hope was on Guterres' side that the rarity of what he was doing would have a huge global world opinion type impact on, on the United States policy. But it, it didn't because, you know, the U.S. is now entering, is about 10 months away from a presidential election. Biden has to deal with uh, his constituency that he needs for getting reelected and the Jewish vote is absolutely crucial for him. I'm, I'm being a little crass about this, but this is, in fact, the calculations that go into you know, global politics. Of course, of course. And um, at the same time, Netanyahu wants to stay in power, and he figures he, he's fighting a righteous battle, and this will allow him to survive, because if, he, if, if they had an election today, he wouldn't survive, because he was the man who had promised Israel for all the years he was in power that he would protect their security, and obviously he blew it on this issue. 
not having any anticipation that Hamas would invade as it did a few months ago. So he is in great trouble and wants to stay in power. So he has his own reason to, to uh, continue the uh, attack. I mean, the UN certainly plays a huge role in Gaza. In fact, over 100 of its employees have been killed uh, during the, this late invasion by uh, Israel into Gaza. The problem there is that the UN really can't act without the, the United States' involvement. The United States is the crucial player that can have influence on both sides. And the United States, under Biden, kind of withdrew from any role because they felt it was an intractable uh, situation. The, 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 it, wouldn't, it was a waste of their time to get involved in it. I mean, they, they can't fully fault the UN on that, on that agenda because the U.S. Didn't, didn't play a role. So the UN is there to be available to parties when the, when the fighting's going on or when the fighting's ending to sort of bring about some either cold peace or warm peace, but at least a peace. Um, but if it's not in a position to take that kind of action, you can't really criticize the organization itself. There are sometimes situations which are literally out of control of, of, of the UN, and, and it can maybe make have some impacts on the margins, but not directly on ending the fighting. Right. A couple of issues there. One has to do with, with leadership, which I'll say for a minute. Um, and of course, it's especially hard with this one because there's no love lost between Israel and the United Nations. So that makes it especially hard for that particular member state. But um, so I have a question about now this. This leads me to the issue I'd love to just bring up, which is out of, sure. of, of leadership. So we start off in the, f in the 40s with the leadership of FDR and then the leadership of Stettinius during the conference itself. Can you just share how important or not the leadership of a secretary general is, and then to maybe talk about uh, some of the ones we've had in the past? And has it been a progressive improvement or decline, or is it really a hit and miss on the particular individual? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I would say, in, in brief, that most of the secretary generals, whether they're average or above average, are committed to the ideals of, of the organization. But there have been great leaders and not so great leaders. Um, Doug Harmershaw pr probably was one of the greatest of all secretaries general. He introduced the, the whole idea of peacekeeping, which had not really existed before. It's not even mentioned in the original UN Charter. I am here to serve you all. In so doing, I shall count on your understanding. I am animated by a desire to meet all problems with an open mind. It is for you to judge how I succeed. It is for you to correct me if I fail. Uh, Kofi Annan, who I think was, again, one of the most extraordinary of secretaries general, who um, was uh, a man who introduced the idea of the sustainable development goals. Um, he was also a man of a great moral compassion. There are challenges and issues, but not just for the UN. It's for all of us. Um, we, we live in a world where we have to understand we are, all, we are all in the same boat, and one cannot be secure at the expense of the other. One cannot be prosperous at the expense of the other. 
and a world in which extreme poverty and immense wealth live side by side is simply not sustainable. When we say, what should the UN do? How can the UN do this? We are basically saying, how do we get governments, your government and mine, to act cooperatively in the common uh, interest? And if they do not cooperate and work together, and what we are trying to achieve fails, who has failed, the UN or the individual countries, particularly the powerful countries? We've also had duds like Kurt Waldheim, yeah, who turns out worked in, in with the Nazis during the Second World War and uh, was otherwise a kind of washout as a secretary general. Are, are, are things elastic enough that a secretary general can be a very activist and still still work well? Can they be sort of a figurehead and work well, or how, how does the job... The, the, the secretary generals who are activists are quite extraordinary because they, they do take chances. Uh, the UN tends to be a conservative organization in the sense that it sticks by just the normal day-to-day -day operations of the organization. So when you get an activist uh, secretary general, they're pushing against the boundaries of the past, and this means that they cause controversy. Um, and uh, Hammarskjöld himself was a very controversial figure because he demanded that more out of the organization than, than had previously happened. Uh, you thought by getting involved in, in, in the greatest crisis ever to face the UN, the Cuban Missile Crisis, also was considered controversial. He was taking a role that had not really been envisioned before in, in this dramatic showdown between the Soviet Union and the United States, and yet he had carried off in a way that was magnificent because there's a need, and the, the UN is there to fill that need. No other organization is equipped to do what the UN does, and it, it, under the secretary generals that I've uh, pinpointed, we've seen an expansion of, of responsibility by the organization, which has never been really thwarted because it's filling a need that the humankind, human people, uh, human beings really need to have filled. And fortunately, the UN is a, a flexible enough organization that, and particularly a uh, charter, which its language is, is um, expansive enough to um, build constantly in new ways that never re were even anticipated by the founders back in 1945. So just really quickly, I thought I'd ask, is there anything else that you might want to say? Well, I think one of the things that the UN lacks is an ability to promote itself. Um, in fact, there's a stricture against the UN being a um, publicist for its own virtues, and I think that's unfortunate because that means that a lot of people just don't know what the UN does. You know, they, they, it's kind of background noise, but doesn't really come to the forefront of, of, uh, of their own lives. Uh, but m much of global policy is based in one way or the other on the UN. I mean, the UN is, enforces sanctions against Iran because the nations of the globe think that Iran has behaved terribly. But the UN gets very little public acknowledgement for, for its strengths, and I think that uh, is, is a problem. 
So I think the promotional part of the UN is lacking, and I think that's hurt the organization. Yeah, as, as you know, that's one of my big, uh, my big issues and in, in, in big points of, of activism is to is for the for the UN to just make itself known to the general public, and that's one one of the reasons why this the whole story of the founding and of FDR and his ability to to make people aware aware of the issues and. I keep noticing time after time the, the, the missing of opportunities to have the UN aware of itself. Um, but uh, this reminded me of something that this fellow Eugene Chen, a former senior UN official who worked on finance and reform issues, he's now at NYU, and he writes, the fact that the UN is not the most effective and efficient organization in the world is not just the fault of the UN, part of the blame has to rest with member states. Um, again, a simple statement but but I, I think one of the things that, that that my studies this last round have gone of have yeah like like how far can we always you know blame the UN and maybe some of its dysfunction and how much just does the UN just not have the ability to to um, enforce or just uh, do more when states are you know behaving badly <laughs> the successful use of this instrument will require the united will and firm determination of the free peoples who have created it. The job will tax the moral strength and fiber of us all. We all have to recognize, no matter how great our strength, that we must deny ourselves the license to do always as we please. No one nation, no regional group can or should expect any special privilege which harms any other nation. So, again, here I am with the charter under one arm and the, uh, United, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on the other. If they're right there in front of us, the answers of good behavior and good right relationship and how humanity can, can get along. And if, if countries decide to throw the Universal Declaration under the bus and to throw the charter under the bus, what what more can the, the UN sort of do? Well, I think the, the UN is up against the major issue of our time, which is human nature. We've had wars immemorial, immemorial uh, two, three thousand years they go on, conflicts, arguments. People don't always agree on issues. The question is, Understanding that that is human nature, that these will never go away. It's just the way our, we're made as human beings. The question is, what kind of rules can you set up? What kind of legal um, boundaries can you produce? Uh, and you try to come up with the best you can. I think the UN has tried to do that. Then the question is, how do you get the human beings to abide by these rules and regulations? And that's the, the most difficult part. So all of this is very aspirational, and we, right. we have to kind of keep fighting the same fight again and again, but at least the rules are there. So, so could you expand on that a little bit, almost as a way of, uh, of closing, that, that we've talked about many, many different issues, and if you had to, to even give a more you know, full-throated statement of your optimism towards the UN with all of these, these challenges and why we should continue on. Um, uh, what might you say to end our, our, our series here for people to get to work, to help, to volunteer, to, to become a wiser global 
citizens, um, what might you say to? Well, I, I would say that that everybody, every society has its own standards, and most of those standards are very much reflected in the UN Charter, and and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And if we want to uphold those two extraordinary documents, we have to be involved in a kind of civic way to make sure that those ideals are reflected in the way we live our lives, in the way we support these these I incredible, awesome documents. Uh, and I that means trying to pressure your own government to uh, adhere to them, to, um, in your own way, carry out the... Uh, virtues and tenets of, 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 of both the UN's primary goals and also to, um, in, in your own way, make sure that we keep to a aspiration that human peace is, is possible. I mean, right now, you wouldn't believe that when you see two, two great wars going on both in Ukraine and Gaza, but human peace is possible, and that is something we should all aspire to. And we have the rules, we have the regulations, they're embodied in the UN Charter and, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So we know that there are ways to achieve these goals. Now the question is, are you committed to them? Are you willing to go out and fight for them? And I think all Americans and all the world population should adhere to these precepts. They're absolutely critical to the survival of our species. And I think that alone should be a central tenet to our, our future. And I hope that all of our listeners will abide by those tenets and, and feel that they are making their own contributions to, to uh, confirming them. Well, Stephen, those were very, very wise, wise words. And with them, I, I hate to even suggest the thought, but I think we may be finished with our, our podcast series. And I just want to thank you so much for allowing me to have the time with you to chat about these things. It's been a huge education for myself and, and an act of mobilization. And uh, I'm going to miss our talks, but thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, thank you for having me, and I very much appreciate talking about these absolutely essential issues of human survival, and you, you raised all the questions that had to be raised in our long conversation. Well, all of this was inspired, as you know, by, by my falling in love with your book, because it's all there, either explicitly or, or in potential. It, it asks the right questions or inspires you to ask the right questions. And it's been hugely helpful for me and I'm sure for many others. So thank you very much. Thank you. Keep your eyes and ears open for more points of view wherever you may find them about the UN and its charter. Active Creation was produced and contains music by yours truly, Dan Becker, all in grateful collaboration with Past Blue. I'd like to express, and I am sure Stephen would join me here, my special thanks to Dulcie Leinbach, co-founder along with Barbara Cassette and editor of Past Blue, and the third and unsung hero of our creative trio. And of course, thanks to our special guest, Steve Schlesinger, who has given so much of his time, his mind, and his endless goodwill. Past Blue receives major support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York 
and the Open Society Foundations as well as from smaller foundations and, most important, from thousands of readers across the globe like you. Thanks, as always, for listening.